give you a copy of Psalm 1. I'll give you some pens if you need one. And then I'm really going to give you just a few minutes, maybe five minutes or so, maybe a little longer. And individually, you're just going to look at the text. You're going to read through it. And then you're just going to highlight areas, circle areas, mark them. If there's something that's repetitive, uh, if there's a phrase that you notice that's being used, um, something that's mentioned that stands out to you or speaks to you in some way, honestly, just doodle on it, mark it up. I'll kind of show you guys my notes. This is my copy of just where I, kind of how I did it. Um, you're going to do different than what stands out to you. Um, also, this is my finished copy. So it didn't look like this in the beginning. Um, what I do is I go through the whole text and make all my observations, all my notes that stand out to me, uh, circle different words and phrases, and then uh, I'll go back with a study tool. It could be either a commentary. It could be a study Bible if you have one of those. Um, I was given uh, a long time ago a NASB, a New American Standard Study Bible, and the commentary in there is just really really fruitful. So if it's something like that that you go to, that's when you would then go back and you'd kind of add into whatever the Lord kind of already gave you. All right. So, but tonight what we're going to do is you're just going to kind of make your observations, make some notes on some things, and then we'll talk about it in just a little bit. All right. So we'll go ahead and hand these out. I'll leave the pens for a minute. So make sure everybody gets one here. They're like kind of stuck together there. TJ remembering that we're going to do some music in the background. I love that because I already forgot. Three and I think four. Yep. There you are, ma'am. Oh, you're fine. There you go. Yes. I think that's four. Should be four. Wait, you guys need five. I've not seen Evan for a second. All right. So who needs a pen? Uh, at the end. Yep. If there is... Uh... Okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully... We're trying to save it for the end so we have some time for the home, the kind of individual stuff. Can you hand it to your brother? Thank you. Anyone else need a pen? So like I said, just take a few moments, go ahead and just mark that text up as you read through it, words or phrases or things that stand out to you. We'll give you a few minutes to do this, and then we will start breaking the text apart tonight.
Just a couple more minutes. finishing up. 
So uh, if you're obviously in the middle, obviously go back to it later. But um, I want to kind of take some time. So we're going to break this apart together. We're just going to go verse by verse through this. And uh, you'll have opportunity to share as we go, and maybe some way that spoke to you. Um, but I do want to share, before we get into that, and I've shared this before for a while, um, so if you've been here before, you've heard this many times over. Um, when I was in college, uh, Sandra kind of and I were talking about different ways that we study the Word, and she was kind of taught through uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Eastern Michigan, where she went to school, that uh, it's called OIA. Uh, the letter O, the letter I, the letter A, observation, interpretation, application. And so I, it just stuck with me as a really easy way to understand how to do a Bible study, how to understand a text or even a chapter. And so what we just did was the first part of that, just the observational stage. You're just making observations. You're just noting things about the text. Uh, some of you m- may already have studied this psalm or the book of Psalms. And so you have prior knowledge that you're working from too. So you may be in your note-taking or observations, you maybe already were thinking things that, because you've studied this before in the past. Um, And so what we want to do is kind of take those observations and then talk about, okay, what does all this mean? And then ultimately, why do we study the Bible? Uh, Yes, to know him and to worship him and to honor him, but also to apply these things to our lives that we might be changed as a result. And so Bible study is not intended to be difficult, but it does take effort. It takes work. Right? It takes discipline to say, I'm going to commit to doing this. Um, also worth noting, Psalm 1 is probably, in my opinion, the most read psalm. Uh, because so many people with great intentions go, I'm going to read the book of Psalms. And they read Psalm 1, and then they get busy. And they just fall off, and they never get back to it. So we just read a psalm that's very familiar to us. Most of us, if not all of us, have read it many, many times. Um, it's, a, it's an easy psalm to understand kind of the text and the point of it. And so we're going to dive into this. The first thing to note is that, and again, you can take notes on the side, on the bottom, on the back, wherever you want to. Um, Psalm 1 is actually kind of a summary psalm for the book of Psalms. So Psalm 1 is like a summary of the whole book. And it's kind of amazing how God orchestrated this. Um, It is kind of like a, a preface, or preface rather, to the Psalms. It's setting up the whole book of Psalms. And so when you read this, we're going to understand why this fits so well. When you hear the things that are talked about here and you read through here, the idea of blessing, right, and sinning and how that looks and the outcome of those things, the joy that we find or the consequence of pain and destruction. That's what Psalm really talks about a lot. As you go through the book of Psalm, it's a lot of those ideas, either finding our joy and our happiness in God or trying to find it in the world and never being satisfied. And so this is kind of a setup to the entire book of Psalms. And so the first thing we need to know is Psalm 1. Here we see the progression of blessing or sinning. The progression of blessing or sinning. So Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, the psalmist here, which is just another name for the author of the psalm, uh, is believed to be David, as in King David. Uh, The reason some think this is because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are kind of connected, and many have attributed Psalm 2 to David. Therefore, they would say, most likely, David is the author, driving us or, or making us understand what it means to have a blessed life or what it looks like to have sin in our life. There's a progression here of these two things. The psalm opens up with the word blessed. Now, what comes to your mind when you read Psalm 1 and the first word is blessed as a New Testament 
Christian? Is there another passage or another idea that comes to your mind when you read the psalmist say, blessed is the man, blah, 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 who does this? What comes to your mind? Okay, the Beatitudes. So if you're taking notes and get some, Matthew chapter 5, right? Matthew chapter 5 is the start of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And that is the, be- the beginning of that. Matthew chapter 5 is the Beatitudes, right? Actually, the kids have been going through that in Surf's Up. They've been studying all the different Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And the Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew 5, beginning of Matthew 5, to the end of chapter 7. So it's actually quite a lot of content. A lot of people just think Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, that's one and the same, not much, much else there. But when you read that from Matthew 5 to Matthew, end of Matthew 7, Jesus touches on so many issues, so many issues of their day, but also so many issues of our day. And so, yes, our minds go instantly to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. The word blessed or blessed is the idea of happiness, happiness, but not circumstantial happiness. So it's happiness, but it's not based in any circumstance apart from God. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you can circle blessed, and it means happy or happiness that's not dependent on our circumstances. It's a deep joy that rests in something unchanging. So there's circumstantial happiness. What would be an example of a circumstantial happiness? Like I'm happy, but it's in this situation or this circumstance. Renee, you won a race. Okay. I don't know why I heard I want a raise. And I was like, I can't help you with that. I know. I was like, yes, if you get a raise, that's very much happiness. But if you win a race, that's still the same. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, How about finding like a good parking spot? at a store, right? You're like, oh, that makes me feel happy. I'm happy I don't have to walk. I'm happy I'm close to the door, right? A lot of times we think that God is more concerned about our circumstantial happiness than our deep joy. And we think God is more concerned about making me happy in all these little moments, circumstantially happy, versus this deep joy that comes from within, apart from any circumstances I find myself in. And the truth is, God is much more concerned about your joy, that deep-seated joy, than he is your circumstantial happiness. And in fact, he will actually take you through situations that will not make you happy in the moment, but will in turn grow that joy for him. And only God can do this. Only God can take us through something that everyone else in the world would go, that would torment me. I would hate that. I don't want to go through that. And we're not saying we like going through it, but as believers, we go through those moments and we have a deeper joy. Paul talks about this. I believe it's in Romans chapter 5 when he talks about the tribulations that we face in this world. And I might be off there, but I'm pretty sure that's the chapter that I'm thinking of. But he talks about this idea that, that we can get joy in the tribulations, not because we're joyful that we're being you know, persecuted, but the fruit of that tribulation is Growing in Christ, Christ-likeness, maturity in Christ. And so therefore, we take joy in that. James chapter 1, when we go against diverse trials and situations, we find joy. Why? Because we're becoming more like Christ. And so here, the psalmist says, there's a blessing available to mankind. And it's a happiness. It's a deep-seated joy. But it's not, yes, that was as loud as you thought it was, Abby. That really was as loud as you thought it was. Because um, she was. Okay, yes, it was that loud. Um, But you're fine. Um, So that's joy, this deep-seated joy. 
Again, not based in changing things of our lives, but based in something unchanging. Well, who do we know? Who do we trust that's unchanging? The person of Christ, right? The Father, the Spirit. Same yesterday, today, and forever. So why do I have joy in Christ? Because he never changes. The same promise he promised you at the moment of your salvation to seal you unto the day of redemption and keep you until you're with him, he didn't change. He didn't renege on that deal. He's still holding that promise. So therefore, there's a joy in that. Now, are Christians, or us as Christians, are we always going to have momentary happiness and joy that's coming out overflowing? Some personalities, man, they're just always happy all the time. They're always bubbly, always smiling, and usually early in the morning, which frustrates people like me, okay? I don't, I don't, it's taken me a long time. I should say I don't like them. I don't, I don't enjoy being around those people at like 7, 7.30 in the morning because they're like, oh, this is great. And I'm like, I want to be in bed. Like, I don't want to be awake right now. So there's some people that your personality is just that way. But even beyond that, it's not just this emotional happiness either. It's something deeper than that. Here's the reality. You can be going through an emotional trial and a weight and tears can be streaming down your face because of the pain you're going through. And there's a joy yet in that. Why? Because you know God is going to use this thing for his glory and your blessing. You know God's going to use it. So yeah, you're in pain, but there's a joy because you trust in someone unchanging. And so the psalmist says, there is a progression of blessing or a progression of sinning. So the progression of sin in our lives, amazingly, and not by coincidence, it is the exact same today as it was when this psalm was written. What is the progression of sin in our lives? What are the three kind of steps or progressions we see in Psalm 1? If you noted these words, what, what did you see there as far as a progression in Psalm 1? Okay, so walk. You guys circled that word. Walk, stand, sit. So if you didn't circle those, underline, circle those, underline those. To me, that's the progression of sin in our lives. We're walking, we're just kind of active in our life, and all of a sudden we find ourselves walking now with those who are ungodly. Now this is not saying, here's where we don't want to go the wrong way with this, this is not saying we can't have non-Christian friends. This is not saying we have to only be friends with Christians. When it talks about this thing of walking with someone, there's a closeness in this relationship. So what I used to tell the students when I was doing youth ministry was, you can have all the unsaved friends you want, be kind to them, be gracious to them, show Christ to them. But when it comes to those friends that you lean on, the ones that you look to wisdom for, the ones that you want influence over your life, those need to be believers. Those need to be followers of Christ. You can have all these unsaved friends and you have a good relationship with them and you care for them and they care for you. But when you're going to a friend to say, I need advice on this, we don't go to someone outside of Christ. Why? Because they're not going to have the same mindset. And that's what this is talking about. That close, close friend, that real close, intimate friend that you have should be a believer. Why? Because you're going to go to them and you want godly counsel. You want godly wisdom being shared with you. Now, if you're trying to figure out how to do certain math in your math class and you don't know how to do it, you can ask your unsafe friend that. I'm not saying you can't have that conversation. Okay, you'll live. It's fine. But in this case, we're talking about these real life things. When you're really struggling with something, do I do this or do I do that? For teenagers, do I date this person or not date this person? Do, for as young adults, do I go to this college or that college? Do I start this job or do I do that job? 
We don't go to the world and ask their opinion on these things first. We go to people who are spiritually mature, people who are in Christ, people who would seek the word with us. And we say, hey, would you pray for me about this in wisdom? So what the psalmist is saying, when we walk with these people, we don't walk in that kind of relationship with the ungodly. Because what will happen is we'll find ourselves standing with them. So now we've stopped and we're actually standing. That means now we're listening, right? We're taking in what they're saying. We've walked with them sometimes. And, and again, going back to when I was in youth ministry, I knew students who would try to missionary date which never worked. And this is where a, usually a Christian girl would date a non-Christian guy. And I would say to them, do you think it's wise to be dating someone who's not a follower of Christ? And they would say this, well, my hope is I can get them into church. My hope is that I can lead them to Christ. I will tell you right now with 11 years of experience, never saw it work once, not once, but every single time it always led the Christian to stop going to church, stop being involved, stop wanting to do things for Christ. And so to me, again, it's this idea that we're standing with them now. We've walked with them for a little while. Maybe the intentions were good, but now we're starting to be influenced by the ungodly. So now we're not influencing them. They're influencing us. And now we're no longer progressing for Christ. We're standing in the midst of the ungodly. And now we're taking it in. And we're taking in all this influence. And what's the next thing we're going to do according to the psalm? We're going to sit down. What does that mean? Now we're just right there with them. We're taking part in whatever's going on. And the psalmist is so clear here. Walk, stand, sit. That is the way of the sinner. So if we choose to walk with the right people, we won't stand with the wrong people. We won't sit with the wrong people. And we'll find blessing, not sin. Because remember, what's the, the idea here? Blessed is a man that does not do these things. So if I'm choosing to not do those things, I'm not giving into the way of sin. So what am I leading, my life leading towards? Blessing, not sin. So if I walk with the godly, I take counsel from godly men and women in my life. I stand with the godly. I sit with them. As a result, I'm going to be blessed, happy, not circumstantially, but a deep-seated joy. We will never take part or sit in sin if we never walk in the counsel of the ungodly. David is telling us that when we give credence to ungodly influences— we will find ourselves justifying sin by conforming to the ungodly culture around us. And we've seen this time and time and time again. Influence is everything. Here's the thing. You have the right to decide who has an influence over you. No one just gets that right, apart from, obviously, God and the Holy Spirit. But in our human relations, just because somebody wants to be an influence over you doesn't mean you allow them to be an influence over you. You make that choice. And you can say, okay, this friendship, this is as far as we go. I'm your friend. We're friends, but this is as far as it goes. Other people, you might open that door a little more, but you have that choice. Another thing to note here, you'll see, he says, blesses the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That counsel is that idea of influence and listening to them for advice nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in a seat that's scornful. The word sinners there is kind of interesting. When I studied that word out a little bit more, uh, you can make a note somewhere off to the side of Genesis 13.13. Genesis 13.13. The word sinners here is the same as Genesis 13.13 when referring to those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, some suggest, again, this is just opinion. Some suggest this means these sinners were hardened in their commitment to wicked behavior. So when we read the word sinners, most of us do one of two things. We either think of the worst person we know, worst sinner we can think of, worst sin we can think of, 
or we think, well, I'm not that kind of a sinner because I've never sinned like this person has sinned. We start either justifying our sin or we think of an extreme sin and think that's who this is really for. But really, what if it, if it does mean what some have suggested, that this is just referring to those who are hardened in their commitment to sin, then that encourages us to, to be able to identify these people and go, listen, if you spend time around them, there is no way they're going to lead you to godly things because they are hardened in their commitment to sinfulness, to wickedness. In our culture today, there are those who are hardened in their commitment to wickedness. They just don't want anything to do with God. And in fact, they will go the opposite way every single time. And that's the group the psalmist is saying, as we begin the book of Psalms, stay away from these influences. So verse 2, we know now the progression of blessing and sinning. Verse 2, we discover where our joy is found. That blessing, that joy, where is that found? Verse 2, but his delight, so the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and nights. The blessed man finds his delight or joy in the law of the Lord. So that blessed, that joy, that happiness is found in the word, in the law, in knowing God's word. The law of the Lord here, and again, maybe you noted this, noted this somewhere off to the side. The law of the Lord here is most likely referring to the books of Moses. So those first five books of the Old Testament. But in general, is referring to all of God's word. So specifically, most likely when David was writing this, he was most likely referring to the first five books of the law or those first five books of Moses. But in general, it's obviously referring to, under God's inspiration, all of God's word. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, so what I would say, I don't think it's pushing it. So here's the thing. You're absolutely right. One thing that we do as New Testament believers who have the complete revelation of God's word, we have a benefit that the original readers of Psalms don't have. We have the complete revelation of God. So we don't have to see just a foreshadowing of Christ and wonder what does that mean? We have the New Testament that gives us the fullness of that shadow shadowy figure, we go back and we go, now I see Christ in the Passover. Now I see Christ in the temple. Now I see Christ in this. So there's a, it's okay to do that, I believe, because we're letting scripture interpret scripture. It would be different if I took cultural eyes or my human understanding and tried to force it into scripture. But if I'm taking scripture into scripture, I, I think that's fine and healthy. The only thing I would say about, I don't think it's wrong to say he's finding his joy in the Lord which is ultimately really what happens when we study the word. 
right? The more time I spend in the word, the more I get to know the author of the word, God himself. That brings me great joy. The only distinction I would share is in, in scripture, there obviously is a distinction between uh, the word of John 1.1, 1, 1, when it says the word became flesh, um, or the, in the beginning was the word, and then John 1.14, in in when the word became flesh. That's specifically Jesus, right? The word Jesus, the, the mind of God taking flesh. In Ephesians, for example, when he talks about um, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. That word is referring to the actual words, right? The revelation of God's word. So there is a distinction in the Bible between Jesus as the word in flesh and the actual written inspired word that we can use. So an example of this would be um, when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, he quoted scripture back to Satan, right? I believe it was all from Deuteronomy, if I remember right. So he's quoting scripture back, you know, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He was using the word of God, the written word, as a sword, as a weapon to attack the enemy. So in that case, he wasn't speaking, when he spoke those verses, yes, it was him speaking them as the word, speaking the word, but it was actually scripture quoting so again, I, I, there is a distinction there, but I don't know that we want to split too many hairs there, but I, I agree with what you're saying. So when he writes this, I think he's referring to the actual word, like the actual literal five books of Moses, but I believe that ultimately leads him to a joy in the Lord because the Lord is the point of all of that. The Lord is the Passover lamb in Exodus that we read about in chapter 12 that led them out. So uh, to me, that's where I would say you're fine in doing that, I think, um, as long as we know that in Scripture we do see a distinction there for those specific texts. Um, because some people have used, the, for example, the John 1, 1, 14 verse to say, I don't need to give credence to the, the written word of God because I know Jesus, the word of God. So the word of God is greater than the word of God. So when somebody quotes a verse that they don't agree with in their mindset or their theology, they go, well, I don't accept that. I listen to the word. So I get revelation from the word. I don't need this word. This is, this is greater than this. So we have to be careful not to ever elevate one over the other. It is, it is the word of God is inspired and it is given for correction, for reproof and all those things. So hopefully that kind of answers the question in a very long roundabout way we got there. So. So let's go on. So the law of the Lord, again, he's finding joy in that. Um, and how often does he say he's in the, the law of the Lord and he's spending time in the law of the Lord? It talks about this of day and night. He finds his delight in the law of the Lord. Now, again, as we just talked about, we can generally say it's the word of God. So I, when I was writing notes and I was marking some things down and I read that, I put a kind of question for myself. I just wrote down, do I delight in the word? And then I thought, what a great, for me, maybe this isn't true for you, but for me, what a great gauge for my spiritual life day to day. Like if I want to know, am I growing? Am I, don't know, am, I, am I growing as a follower of Christ? Am I maturing in my walk with Christ? A gauge that we can kind of use against ourselves to say, well, do, do I delight in his word today? Do I find joy in his word? Because once I stop finding joy in his word, I'm going to start to slip away from that blessed path of life to what? I'm going to start walking with the ungodly, right? Standing with them, sitting with them. So I, I just want to pose a question to you. I want you to think about this just for a second. When you read the word of God, does it actually give you joy? Now, I don't have to answer out loud, but does it bring joy to your heart? Do you actually find joy in reading it? Or is it more of a chore? 
Is it more of a something, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, you have to do this. Like when you're done reading scripture, you're like, oh, okay, that's done. I checked the box. I can be done. Or when you're reading scripture, do you lose track of time because you just want to keep going and want to keep going and want to keep going? Have you ever been interrupted and you realize, I should have read for five minutes, but I read for 25 minutes? Do you just get lost in it? Not because it's a good read. Not because if it's an interesting story you happen to be reading, which I read through the Kings and Chronicles last, last year and this year, and there are some crazy stories in those books, by the way. Some of those I was like, I forgot all about this, and that's amazing to me that they would do this, right? There's tragedy and drama. We get interested in the books but in the stories, but do we actually just find joy in the fact that this is the written word of God given to you? And if, you've, if you're at a point in your Christian walk where you're like, I don't. I don't find joy in it. I just, I read it because I know I have to and I should as a good Christian, but I don't find joy in it. Then I would warn you, you are not too far from sin. You are so close to giving in to sin. And maybe the sin issue in your life is what's hindering you from finding joy in the word. Because every time you go to the word, the spirit of God just gently, as only he can, convict you of that sin and say, are we going to deal with this today? Or are we going to wait another day to deal with this? And so again, that just, when I was reading that, it just jumped out to me that, man, do I delight in the law of the Lord? And again, if we're being specific, that means he's reading Leviticus and just delighting in the law of the Lord. He's reading Exodus and he's reading Deuteronomy and all these verses, these things that we just push aside as like, well, that's not interesting. That's boring. No, he's delighting in these things. Then he says, he not only delights in them, he meditates on them. He meditates on the word day and night. Now, this is not, in my opinion, uh, meant to be interpreted literally, um, meaning that he literally 24-7 is reading the word and reading the word and reading the word. I think it's saying he's meditating on it. He's thinking on it. He's dwelling on it. A way you can understand this is it means it is constantly on his mind. So if you want to make a note there, meditating would be constantly on his mind. The word of the Lord is constantly on his mind. It's just always there. So what does that tell us? When something's always on our mind, it's something we really love, right? If you have a hobby you love or something you love doing, it's always going to be on your mind doesn't mean you can't do other things. You still function in other ways. But as soon as your mind has a moment to drift and rest, it drifts to that thing. Now, maybe it's a spouse. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying you shouldn't think on your spouse or you shouldn't think on this hobby or this enjoyment. Or maybe you like cars and you're thinking about that car you just saw go by. Whatever, okay? But more than those things, by the way, even more than your spouse, does your mind just rest and dwell on the things of God's word? Now, again, a note you can put here is Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. This was actually uh, what Joshua was told to do in Joshua 1, 8, to meditate on the word. So, again, we see this commonality here that what did we see in Joshua's life? Great blessing, right? God was with him and God moved in great ways. Not because Joshua was a great man, but because Joshua delighted and meditated on the word of the Lord. The word meditate means... Also, to mutter something under one's breath. To mutter something under one's breath. So basically, you could say it this way. David, or the psalmist, was speaking the word to himself continually. He was constantly speaking the word to himself. He was constantly reminding himself of the word. Another word you could put here would be the word study. 
to study the word or to meditate on the word, which obviously we know again from the New Testament that we are to study the word to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word or the, the word of truth. So why do we study? Why do we meditate on it? So we can discern what is true and what is false. Now, we've talked about this before. Many believe that Paul was actually speaking about false epistles that were being written in the early church. People were trying to pass off letters that, oh, Paul wrote this, and Paul wrote that, and Paul's, no, I didn't write that. And so he was saying to them, study the word to the point where when something false comes along, you just know it's false because you know the word so well. You can rightly divide. You can discern between right and wrong. And by the way, that's a great principle for life. The more we give ourselves to the word, the more we can discern quicker and easier between what is right and what is wrong. Greg, Kelsey, and I, we just finished a book as a staff about kind of principles for discernment. And it was an amazing read by Tim Challies, such a good work that he did. I think it was from quite a few years back. But in every chapter, on every page, it was just constant reminder that the more you know the word, the more you know Christ, the more you know the truth the easier the lies are to spot. We don't start with the falsehood and try to define that and discern that and then move to the truth. If you know the truth, the falsehood's always going to be easy to find. And so in the same way, as blessed individuals that have a joy that is deep-seated, we don't rest in the ungodly and their wisdom. We go to the Word. We delight in the Word. We meditate. We study the Word so that we can understand discernment. So quickly, we'll do verse 3, and then we'll have to probably wrap it up. So verse 3, almost out of time. The result of obedience. The result of obedience. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit. I'm sorry, it brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Man, there's a verse that has been memorized, t-shirted, coffee-cupped, Facebooked, right, bumper-stickered, Okay, we love that verse. So many people love that verse because it ends with a word called prosper. And we love that word prosper as human beings. So we're going to talk about that in just a second. So he says this, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So what comes to mind when you think of a tree planted by the rivers of water? Like when you read that, what did you think of? Did you think of like a small little tree? How many of you thought of like a big, solid, massive tree that jumped up in the air? A few of you guys? Okay. How many of you didn't think of a tree at all and you were just kept reading? Anyone? A couple of people? Okay. 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 So a large tree, deep roots, right? If you've ever been on a river where a tree was right by the side of the river, you can actually almost see the roots kind of breaking through. And so that's kind of the imagery I think we're supposed to have. Now, when he goes to this illustration, what kind of illustration is this? Where he's using agriculture, right? He's talking about something in nature. When he does this, it's made for a purpose or it's said for a purpose because the people hearing it instantly know what that kind of a tree looks like. They know what this means. They're recognizing in their mind what this kind of illustration looks like. It's familiar to the audience. And I love this style of writing because it draws to our attention a word picture, now, who else was really, really good at doing this kind of teaching? Jesus, right? How often did he tell this beautiful story using agriculture or using seeds or farming or whatever, and you just draw to mind, especially us in this community because we're surrounded by farmland, we can think of these things. It's meant to give a clarity 
of understanding. So this tree planted by the water, what it's, what's it going to do? What's the, what's the outcome of this tree? What, why is it planted by the water and what's going to be the result? What? It's going to bring forth its fruit. Notice this, his fruit in his season. So that means there may be seasons where we don't see as much fruit. That doesn't mean the tree is not still strong. God may just be in a different way or working in a different way in that person's life. But the fruit will be there. Now, there is something else that comes to our mind. What other New Testament reference comes to our mind? We think about a tree producing fruit. Okay. Okay, that way. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yep. The fig tree that was cursed. Keith? Yeah. Uh, wasn't that in the song you guys sang this morning about abide, abiding in the vine or in, in the branches abiding in the vine? Yeah. So yeah, the John 15, right? That, that we are the branches, okay? We're not the gardener, remember? We're not the husbandmen, that's God, right? So we don't need to worry about policing anyone else's branches, right? There's only one gardener and he's doing a pretty good job. I don't need to, as a branch, look over another branch and be like, you're not doing very good. You should do more, Right? So there's the gardener, the husbandman in the King James. We are the branches. Jesus is the vine. And I've always kind of looked at this way. The Holy Spirit is like the pruning shears, right? The Spirit is what God uses to do that spiritual gardening in our lives, if you will. And so this idea of being firmly planted, having all the resources we need readily available for the purpose of producing fruit, draws us as Christians to the understanding of abiding in Christ and we will produce fruits. Now, how is it that this tree is producing fruit. Why is this tree so firm, so secure, having all of its nutrients provided to it? What in the text has let us know what, or rather why this tree is so strong? Okay. So what, what did we just read in the first couple of verses that's providing that nourishment for us? Yes. So we're, we're blessed. We have a happiness and a joy because we're meditating on the word of God, right? Day and night, it's continual. So that blessing is being put through us in a sense to the fruit, right? So the tree that isn't producing fruits, if we're going to use this analogy, so bear with me for a moment. The tree that isn't producing fruit, isn't blessed, isn't abiding in the word. Therefore, they're the ones walking, standing, sitting with the ungodly. Therefore, the way of the sinner. So David is saying, if you want to be this tree that is firm and secure, it's not hard, right? It's, it's easy to understand. We need him. We need his word ministering to us because it's ultimately, and by the way, the spirit of God produces fruit in us. It was the spirit of God that worked in the Old Testament saints as well. David didn't see God do great things because David was a great man. God saw David do great things, or David saw God do great things through him because God's spirit was on David. These other individuals we read about that did these great things for God, these great prophets of God, they were used by God. Their spirit, the spirit of God was upon them in a different way. We're not going to dive too deep into that, but still the same spirit works in us. So the fruit that's produced in our lives that brings glory to God and blessings to others is the same spirit that did the work in the Old Testament. So here we understand here that this idea is a result of Obedience. When we obey and we submit to the word of God, we're finding our joy in the word of God, living in that blessed life, we will see fruits. Again, not by our merits, because as Christians, we are rooted and grounded in Christ. 
that root system that Julie talked about, our roots go deep in Christ. And, and Paul says this, I believe in Colossians, that we are rooted in Christ. We are grounded in him. So any fruit that's produced is a result of where our roots run to Christ. And again, obedience is the key. We're not quenching the spirit, walking in the flesh, but we are walking in the spirit. What's another way to say walk in the, walk in the spirit and not walk in the flesh? Walking in the flesh, walking with the ungodly, standing, sitting with them. Walking in the spirit, that's the blessed lifestyle. Walking in the wisdom and guidance of God's word. So again, we see these connections through the New Testament as well. The last part here. So this tree is producing fruit. And then the part that everyone loves, whatever he does will prosper. Whatever he does will prosper. Man, that has been taken out of context more ways than we can count. This does not mean that any selfish ambition or financial desire will be met. This is referring to prospering in the production of fruit. Right? Isn't that what the text says? He will prosper. What's going to prosper? Fruit. The tree analogy is still being referred to here. So again, what does the fruit look like? That's spiritual success. So God is not saying, if you obey or find joy in my, Lord, my word, if you abide in me, if you are blessed, it's going to result in prospering by the world's definition of prospering. In the world's eyes, getting these things, these raises, these jobs, these cars, these financial things, that's how the world says we prosper. But remember, we're not listening to the ungodly's definitions and influences. We're listening to God's influence, the word of God. And there are a lot of people in God's word that prospered greatly spiritually, but suffered greatly in this world. Actually, Hebrews says, going backwards, Hebrews says, there have been those who were naked and destitute and afflicted and lived in caves and were persecuted and were sawn asunder. Does that sound like the world's definition of prospering? No, no one's signing up for that life. But the Bible then says, but the world was not worthy of them because they were spiritually prospering, spiritually successful. We talked about this actually in our Genesis study going back quite a ways to a couple years ago on Wednesday night. We talked about the reality that spiritual success always takes longer than worldly success. Spiritual success always takes longer than worldly success. And that's okay. That's totally okay. We talked about this with the lines coming after uh, Cain and Abel. And we know the story there. And so Seth came along. And there's a verse in there that says that Seth began to walk with God or had a relationship with God. I forget the wording exactly. But when you study the line of Seth and the line of Cain, you're going to find out Cain's line was much more successful worldly thinking or worldly speaking. I mean, musicians and artists and workers of bronze and brass and city builders. Worldly, that was a very successful line, family line. And all it said was Seth was that he had a relationship with God. But when you read on, you find out, but Seth's line was blessed. Yeah, Cain's line did some great things, successful in the world's eyes. But that spiritual success was much more fruitful, much more impactful, as we know, because that is a line that led to the person and work of Christ. And so again, this idea of prospering is not in a worldly definition. I think so many people simplify this and do damage to the gospel by making it about material possessions. It preaches good. It sells seats and people love it and they sell books by it or about it, but it just doesn't fit in scripture. This also refers to the idea 
of bringing perfection because their sins are covered. Uh, we're going to step out of, we're, we're not going to do this too often, but Psalm 32. I need someone to go to Psalm 32 and verse 1. We're going to read that verse uh, and then we'll close. So Psalm 32 and verse 1. When someone has that verse, let me know. I'd love to have somebody read that for us. So Psalm 32 and verse 1. Evan, are you raising your hand? Oh, it was a stretch. Okay, all right. He shot his hand up there real quick. Your mom's got it right there, man. Psalm 32 and verse 1. Who wants to read that for us? Renee? Awesome, thank you. So where does our joy come from? That abiding in the word, right? And what does the Psalm 32 tell us? Our sins are covered. Our joy is deep, right? When I have joy in the Lord, I know my sins are covered. So how am I prospering spiritually? Are my sins covered? And if my sins are covered, then I have joy. Not circumstantial joy. And again, that prospering, when we make it about material possessions, we've completely missed the true idea of happiness. But man, when my sins are covered, I have joy because I am free and I am cleansed. And it's not circumstantial. It is, it is so much more than that. It, it is so much deeper than that. So just an encouragement for you guys. We're going to pick up in verse 4 uh, next week. And so we'll, we'll jump in there. I do want to take just a moment. Um, I know Julie said she has a, a prayer concern she would like to share. And so I do want to take just a moment. We'll take a couple prayer concerns and then we'll close in prayer. Julie, did you want to share that? Yes. Something with her heart, right? Yep. Yeah, and her name was Stephanie. Stephanie. Yep. Yep. So um, uh, we heard about that. Sandra went to school with her at North Branch, I believe. So she knew, so they were friends on Facebook and stuff. Um, Yep, yep, and she, that's what that's what the first thing Sandra said was, I'm so thankful that she knew the Lord um, because it was so sudden and she was younger. So, uh, but yeah, let's be praying for that family. Uh, Lily was the last name, right? Well, her, her the maiden name was Lily. Schultz. Schultz, yep, okay. So let's be praying for that situation, the loss of Stephanie Schultz. Um, anyone else before we close in prayer, maybe a prayer concern. Remember Bob Raymond, as we mentioned before, praying for him. Um, he is doing well. He is home. And uh, last I saw, they did not think the cancer had spread. So I want to be praying for, for continued healing there and comfort there. Again, a praise about the shoes, all those shoes that came in. Man, what a blessing. And so uh, they are being stored. Uh, uh, Wendy Powell is the one that kind of approached us with the idea for doing this. And so she said, uh, there's like, that's like a tripping hazard. Do you want me to like move that from the door? Um, so she's going to kind of store some of these at her house in her garage. And then once we get all of them collected, she's going to deliver them uh, to the place in Port Huron. So uh, they didn't go away. They're, they're still going to be given. So if you went out there and saw them missing, they're still going to go there. So praise the Lord for that. Talking to Dave this morning, um, she, uh, they, she was told six weeks 
Um, and so uh, she's got to pretty much stay off of it, no weight. Um, but it sounds like from what Dave was saying this morning, she's doing well with it. Um, I would just pray for probably just like anything else. I mean, she's going to be in the house stuck most likely in a chair or on the couch. So she really can put no weight on it. Um, and she's got a big brace uh, that goes from like her upper thigh all the way down to like almost her ankle, I guess. So um, she's really kind of immobilized. Um, and so be praying for her. Pray for her that she doesn't hurt Dave in any way um, because she's stuck in the house with Dave for hours and hours and hours. Um, actually, she'll probably just be like, go golf, go do something away from the house. So, but it sounds like she's doing well, but continue praying for that for sure. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer and we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and love in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that we would realize the treasure that it is. Uh, Lord, it is valuable. It is, it is worth our time. It's worth our attention. And Father, I know in my own Christian life, I, I'm ashamed to think of the amount of time that I've neglected your word. I've struggled for answers, and yet there was your word sitting nearby, unopened, uh, untouched. And, and Lord, it just led to more confusion But Lord, when we get into your word and we begin to pray for wisdom and seek uh, answers that would glorify you, we're not going to find the the answer verbatim on on a page magically. Uh, But Lord, there's going to be wisdom. There's going to be guidance. We're going to learn discernment. We might read a principle or understand a way that you've worked in the past. And that might give us insight into how to discern and decide what we need to do today. And so I pray that we would meditate on your word day and night that we would speak it to ourselves continually. Lord, it really is true that we're always talking to ourselves. We're always saying things to ourselves. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we saying to ourselves? Are we saying things the world wants us to say? Are we saying things our flesh wants us to say? Either negatively tearing ourselves down or in a false sense, building ourselves up apart from Christ. Lord, both are destructing and damaging. When we speak the word to ourselves, your word, it will only allow our roots to run deeper, our joy to be deeper, our trust to be fuller. And so thank you for all that you've provided to us. And I pray that we would realize that any fruit that is produced in our lives is only by the work of your grace, that it is not us. We are just the branch And it's when we abide in the vine that you allow that to take place in our lives. I pray we would realize that that we can be used by you, not because of who we are, but because of who you are and what you've already done. And so again, we find that in the word. And so Lord, help us to have wisdom as we study the word this week in our personal devotional lives. Help us to set a time every single day, a part time that, that we spend in your word, whether it's five minutes or 15 minutes or whatever, just something. And just to start Just start where we are. Five minutes in prayer, five minutes in the word, and maybe five minutes of just a time of praise and worship. Lord, in 15 minutes a day for the rest of this year could radically change our lives. And so you be glorified in all of this, Lord. Go before us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you guys are dismissed. We'll see you Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And uh, don't forget uh, Widow's Banquet, Widow's Widow's Banquet. We're looking for servers that want to serve tables. No experience needed. Um, Just come on out and serve. It'd be great. You can sign up at the Welcome Center for that. Or kitchen help, Um, non-cooking kitchen help, just to kind of get things ready. So if you want to sign up for that, it's at the Welcome Center. And again, we look forward to that. So have a great week.